0: Welcome to the Heartland Free Church Sermon Podcast. We are so happy to have you joining us today. If you are a first-time listener or first-time visitor here at the church, we would love to get connected with you. You can click that link in the podcast summary. That is our online connection card. If you'd just like to learn more about us as a church, you can visit heartlandfree.com or you can download the Heartland app in whatever app store you prefer. Thank you again for joining us. We've got a fantastic message for you this morning, and we will be getting Into that right now. Well, Jordan Peterson choked back tears as he talked about Jesus on a recent podcast. From all appearances, he is right on the bubble in his faith journey. Thousands of Christians are praying that Jesus will draw Jordan to himself. As you may know, Dr. Peterson is a Canadian professor of psychology rocketed to fame as a conservative talk show host. Religion's one of his favorite topics, but it's been sort of hard to nail down exactly where he's at. Jordan said in a February 2018 interview that it would take him three more years to decide whether Jesus actually rose from the dead. At the time, he could never have known that the next three years would be the hardest in his life. In fact, early in 2020, Jordan had a resurrection of his own. Jordan had been placed in a nine-day coma by doctors in a Russian clinic after becoming addicted to prescription drugs. At the same time, his wife was battling her own health problems, diagnosed with terminal cancer, but she has recovered from that miraculously. But needless to say, both Jordan and his wife Tammy have been doing some heavy thinking about Jesus. For many years now, Jordan has, been, has done research on ancient myths and fairy tales. But the difference he noticed is that Jesus is a real historical person who professed to rise from the dead. Jordan says, the problem is, I probably believe that. And I'm amazed at my own belief, and I don't understand it. When he was pressed to expound on that, Jordan said, it seems to me oddly plausible. I still don't know what to make of it, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. Well, I'm here today to tell you that I do know the answer to that question. If you place your full trust and faith in Christ, it's going to completely change your life. Just like it did with C.S. Lewis. I mean, Lewis was another professor who studied ancient myths and fairy tales in his early 30s. Lewis came to faith that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he's God in the flesh. He died on a cross. He rose from the grave on the third day. Now today, I want to bring you back to those three days that forever changed the course of history. I want to bring you back to the year 33 A.D., the date was April 3rd, as reckoned by our modern calendar. The city of Jerusalem was packed. It was the festival of Passover. The disciple Peter would later record the historic significance of these three days in 1 Peter 3.18. First, we have day one. Friday, April 3rd the crucifixion of Jesus. Peter writes, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Because this is so familiar to us, it's easy to gloss over it, the significance of this darkest of all dark days. On April 3rd, 33 AD, God died. And not only that, he was murdered, premeditated murder. And not only that, it was murder of the most heinous variety. It was preceded with betrayal by his friends and torture by his enemies. He died under a sign that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. In contemporary terms, he was strung up by a lynch mob, But it was a different kind of lynch mob, for it consisted of his own race, his own people. It was his fellow Jews who cried out, crucify him. The Roman governor tried everything he could to wiggle out of it. And yet before we get too critical of the Jews, let's be reminded of exactly what the text says. For Christ died for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous. You see, folks, it was our sin. It was your sin and mine that caused his death. In the previous chapter, 1 Peter 2.22, it says that Christ himself committed no sin. He never had a single thought, word, or deed that did not fully please God. He did not die for his own offenses, He died for yours and for mine. No chapter in the Bible makes this clearer than Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our infirmities, and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We are all like sheep. We've gone astray, each of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us, all of us. I can distinctly remember when I was younger, Coming to the realization that I have violated each of the Ten Commandments, I remember going through them. Have I put other gods before Jesus? Well, there goes the first commandment. Have I idolized things rather than God? There goes number two. Have I always revered and honored the name of God? Well, that's number three. Have I always rested in Christ as my Sabbath rest? That's commandment four. How about always honoring my mom and dad? <laughs> I, uh, I think I blew that one before I was out of diapers. That's number five. How about serious anger? The kind that borders on hatred. Well, I have to admit I've even blown that one. That's number six. How about lust? There goes seven. How about Taking things that do not belong to me. How about deceiving someone? How about envying something that someone has? Friends, that's commandments 8, 9, and 10. Friends, your, your pastor is guilty on all accounts. But you know what? You are too. You need a savior just like I do. And knowing that Jesus died for my sins. Wow, what a relief that is. You see, it says here in God's word that he died once for all. At 3 p.m. on April 3rd, 33 A.D., at the precise moment that Jesus was taking his last breath, only a couple hundred yards away, high priests, they were knee-deep in blood, On a typical Passover, up to a quarter million Passover lambs were sacrificed. That's 60,000 gallons of blood shed on the altar. At 3 p.m., the high priest would have just been finishing up this gruesome chore. Do you think it's simply a coincidence that Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, was being slaughtered at this exact moment, only a few hundred yards away. The phrase, once for all, is the Greek word hapex. And it signifies perpetual validity that does not require repetition. From the moment when Christ took his last breath blood sacrifices were no longer needed. His purpose was to bring you to God. But not everyone will be brought to God. In fact, Jesus said, narrow is the road that leads to life. And Jesus said, only a few find it. So how can you and I be among those few that find it? Well, the Bible says we need to get serious and repent. We need to turn from our sins. That's what Jesus said, Revelation 3.20. And then he said this. He said, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus is knocking at your heart's door today. Have you let him into your life by forsaking your sins and placing your trust in him? How do you do that? Well, Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not complicated. Even a small child can understand it. Jesus died on a cross to save you from sin and Satan and death and hell. Your four great enemies. He wants to be your savior and your Lord. He wants to be the leader of your life. But you have to invite him in. If you've never done that, you can do so today by praying, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I choose to turn my back on the old life. I choose to live for you from this day forward. And if you pray that, if you really mean it, you're going to be saved. Because Jesus said this, He who comes to me, I will never, ever cast out. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? On Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D., 3 p.m., Jesus Christ, the second member of the triune God, died. He died on a cross for your sins. That's the first day that changed the world. Now, we come to day two. Saturday, April 4th, 33 A.D., the descent of jesus we continue on in 1st peter 3:18 with these words jesus was put to death in the body but made alive by the spirit through whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison who had disobeyed long ago when jesus christ died on a cross he really died This is one of the most important truths in all the Bible. We know this because Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For what I received I also passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Have you ever wondered why it's of first importance that Jesus was buried? It's because skeptics have been saying from day one that Jesus didn't really die. It's called the swoon theory, that Jesus merely fainted. He passed into a semi-coma and then revived in the coolness of the tomb and then unwrapped himself and walked on out. But the historical accounts in John 19.31 records that he was so obviously dead that the soldiers didn't even bother to break his legs as they typically did for crucified victims. Why did they do that? They did that because crucified victims would postpone their death as long as they could by pushing themselves up on their legs, which allowed them to gasp for air. So it was really an act of mercy to break their legs. But the soldiers didn't need to do that for Jesus. And yet, nevertheless, just to be on the safe side, one soldier reached up and he pierced his side with a spear, causing blood and water to gush out. Make no mistake about it, Jesus was physically dead. First Peter 3.18 says, he was put to death in the body, but he was made alive in the spirit. This actually happens to every human being when they die. Their body goes into the tomb of some sort, and their spirit immediately goes to the afterlife. This is what Jesus taught in Luke 16 with Lazarus and the rich man. You see, when Lazarus died, he went to the place of the dead, which had a compartment known as paradise. Paradise was for those who placed their faith in God, as the men and women of the Old Testament, uh, those who trusted in God, had done. When the rich man died, however, he had rejected God. So he went to another compartment in the place of the dead called Hades. Now there's also a third compartment called Tartarus. Tartarus could be a subsection of Hades itself. Tartarus is where the wicked angels reside, the fallen angels who had rebelled against God during the time of Noah, as taught in Genesis 6. So, immediately after Jesus died, his spirit went to paradise just as he had promised the repentant thief. Do you remember that? When he said to the repentant thief, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, friends, it was still Friday. It was still that very same day when both the spirit of the repentant thief and the spirit of Jesus arrived in Hades From Friday at 3 p.m. until the early morning hours of Sunday, April 5th, Jesus remained physically dead with his spirit separated from his body. This is very important to understand. You know why? Because Jesus wants us to know that he fully experienced everything that a human being experiences When we die, Jesus really died. Jesus was really buried. The spirit of Jesus separated from his body and traveled to the place of the dead before it was rejoined with his body on Sunday morning. In church history, this is known as Holy Saturday. And that's because 24 of the approximately 36 hours that Jesus was physically dead took place on Saturday, April 4th, 33 A.D., the day when God the Son descended into the place of the dead. Where did he go? Verse 19 says, he preached to the spirits in prison. The Greek word is caruso, to proclaim, to herald, to make an announcement. What was Jesus announcing? He was announcing victory. Complete, total, unconditional victory over all the powers of darkness. Sin and Satan and death and hell were all vanquished by his victory on the cross. Every being in the place of the dead heard Jesus proclaim this. The human spirits that were in paradise the compartment of the saved, the human spirits that were in Hades, the compartment of the unsaved, and the fallen angels who were in prison, the compartment called Tartarus. They all heard this proclamation. You see, at the cross, Jesus permanently and completely defeated all of the forces of darkness. Up until that moment, Satan and his demons, the fallen angels, I think they really thought they had a chance. Maybe somehow, some way, they could disrupt this plan of God to send a Savior. They did everything they could in the Old Testament, didn't they? In order to corrupt the Messianic line, to destroy the tribal line of Judah and the kingly line of King David. Even when the Messiah was born, Herod immediately tried to kill him. And then Satan tried to tempt him in the wilderness. And then throughout his public ministries, his enemies tried to trip him up. On the cross, I think Satan was celebrating his victory. As prophesied in Genesis 3.15, he was battering and bruising the heel of Jesus. And when he breathed his last, Satan, I think he thought his triumph was complete but then Jesus descended right into the very realm of death itself. He proclaimed his victory and he seized the keys of death and Hades. That's what Jesus said in Revelation 1.18. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. For many years north heights lutheran church in the twin cities they did a passion play every easter Uh, we went for uh, a few of those occasions Uh, one of the scenes that was so powerful was the battle for the keys between jesus and satan which raises the question did this battle really take place Matthew Emerson says, yes, Dr. Emerson recently wrote a very interesting book entitled, He Descended to the Dead, an Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday. There was a battle, friends, and it was the mother of all battles, because up until that time, no one had ever been released from the realm of the dead, but on Holy Saturday, April 4, 33 A.D., Jesus seized the keys that belonged to death in Hades. From that time on, Jesus would hold sway over who is released and who is not in the place of the dead. Only one more thing needed was needed to seal the deal. And that brings us to day number three. Sunday, April 5th, 33 AD, the most glorious day, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, if we go back to 1 Peter 3.20, we read, water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus. You see, baptism is merely symbolic. There isn't any ceremony out there that can save you. That is why it clarifies in this passage, we're not talking about the removal of dirt from the body. Rather, what saves you is the pledge of a good conscience. What does your conscience do? Your conscience convicts you of guilt when you do something wrong. A conscience drives you to ask for forgiveness. We come to God and we say, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry for my sins. I have committed so many sins against you. I am guilty, God. Forgive me. I need a Savior to forgive me. Cleanse me, Lord, from my sin. And yet all of this is meaningless apart from the resurrection When the spirit of Jesus reunited with his human body, early on Sunday morning, April 5th, 33 AD, when the body of Jesus jolted to life and walked out of that tomb, friends, the deal was sealed. The victory was complete. The doors to paradise swung open. Ephesians 4.8 says, when he ascended on high, he led the captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. You see, Jesus brought all of the Old Testament saints, he brought them right into the very presence of God himself. And according to Revelation 2 verse 4, paradise is now in the very presence of God. Now back on earth, it's interesting that when Peter and John visited the empty tomb early that Sunday morning, the Bible says in John 20 verse 6 that Peter saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself separate from the linen. In the original Greek, the language hints that the shape of the head and the shape of the body were still apparent. Linens on the head and the body were separated, as if the body of Jesus had simply passed right through the grave clothes. The linens remained behind in a deflated state, as if Jesus had just vanished. Peter and John were stunned. It says that they saw and they believed. They still didn't connect this with the Old Testament prophecies, but they knew that a miracle had taken place. During the next 40 days, Jesus made at least 11 appearances to over 500 people, repeatedly providing proof that he really was alive and that he really was victorious over all of his enemies. I close with this. At the beginning of this message, I asked you to pray for Jordan Peterson, who seems right on the verge of accepting Jesus as his Savior. I also mentioned that Peterson's story is beginning to sound eerily similar to another skeptic named C.S. Lewis. You see, Lewis tells his journey to faith in his book, Surprised by Joy. First, Lewis had to be convinced that there was a God. Lewis describes it like this, and I quote, You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had come upon me. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and I prayed, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. So Lewis reluctantly embraced God. But how about Jesus? Well, that took a little bit longer. Was Jesus real? Lewis's interest had been picked by the faith of his friend Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. Tolkien was far too savvy and far too wise to fall for a fairy tale. So Lewis read the Gospels again for himself. And he was amazed to find that they were believable. It seemed beyond reason that the writers of Scripture made the whole thing up. They really seemed to believe that Jesus died and that he resurrected It was during this time that Lewis wrestled with his famous syllogism, liar, lord, or lunatic. It simply wasn't logical to believe that Jesus was intentionally deceptive, that he was a liar, or that he was delusional, a lunatic. The only logical answer then was Jesus truly was and is who he said he is, He's the Lord of the universe. On September 19th, 1931, C.S. Lewis had a long talk with Tolkien and another friend. In fact, they talked all night with his friends explaining how Christianity liberated them from sin and gave them purpose and meaning in life. Slowly, over the next six weeks, Every last objection that Lewis raised was patiently addressed. finally, on November twelfth, Lewis crossed over from spiritual death to spiritual life. on that day, he and his brother Warren were riding motorcycle to the zoo. When we set out, Lewis said. I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But when we reached the zoo, I did. <laughs> it's amazingly simple. It's really that simple. Jesus put it like this in John five twenty four. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned he has crossed over from death to life have you crossed over from death to life